electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome, everybody, to Power Lunch. Glad you could join us. I'm Tyler Matheson. Kelly will be right back with us in a sec. Here's what's ahead this hour, a double dose of power players. First up, we've got the CEO of Valley Bank. The stock up 12% over the past month, outperforming the bigger banks. We're going to talk lending, the consumer, and why rates, bond rates, other kinds of rates are falling even as the Fed hikes their principal interest rate. Plus, the Vivid Seats CEO, the company reporting a rise in revenue and upping its guidance, will get his take on discretionary spending in the face of this slowing economy. Kelly. Yeah, we're excited to hear more about the consumer, which is showing signs of life in areas, Tyler. Stocks, though, are mostly lower, and the Nasdaq is the biggest laggard today. As we hover just off session lows, the Nasdaq's down one and a quarter percent. The chip names in particular weighing here, the S&P down half a percent. A multi-day losing streak, about four days it's trying to avoid now, and the Dow is down 39. Now, let's look at some of those chip players like Micron, which today is off five percent after issuing a revenue warning of its own just a day after NVIDIA's yesterday. The SMH ETF is off 4.5% today, uh, down around 228. Now, elsewhere, Norwegian Cruise Line is the worst performing stock in the S&P. They say they'll continue to be unprofitable in the third quarter and return to 2019 occupancy levels they say is still a year away. The shares are down 11%. It's dragging down Carnival and Royal Caribbean as well as you can imagine. And there's the pressure on Carnival and uh, uh, RCL, Tyler, down 5.5%. All right, Kel, uh, if you think the moves in the semis and the cruise lines are dramatic, take a look at some of the meme stocks, shares of pandemic darlings like AMC, Bed Bath & Beyond, GameStop. They are down a little bit today and not insignificantly, as you can see right there. But over the past week, Bed Bath & Beyond is up more than 60 percent. AMC up over 30 percent. If meme mania is back, what does it tell us about the state of the overall market? Let's bring in Ed Yardeni. My friend, longtime friend and president of Yardeni Research. Ed, good to see you, sir. Um, the return of the memes suggests <laughs> to me the mania of crowds and little more. Yeah, I think it's a phenomenon that clearly is associated with social media. Uh, it's easy to get a flash mob or a flash crowd together uh, with social media. And uh, that's what this is kind of the analogy uh, that I see between uh, what occasionally happens on social media and what we're seeing happening in the stock market, I think uh, there's a lot of speculators that feel like they can get together using social media and uh, move a stock one way or the other, having nothing at all to do with the fundamentals. So it is a mania. There is. Yeah, I was going to say, is there any connection to the fundamentals of the stocks we mentioned there, AMC, uh, Bed Bath & Beyond and others? Number one, that's number one. And number two, I wonder why the meme in I, I hate to call them investors because I don't really think that's what they're doing. But what right. the, how, the, the meme players keep playing the same stocks. Why don't they move on to something else? It's a really good question. I, I don't really have an answer to that. Uh, maybe they're kind of stuck on uh, these names and they figure they've already got everybody uh, focused on these names and it's easy stuck to get everybody. Stuck on you. What's that? Uh, that uh, yeah, the, the, stuck on you. Stuck on you. <laughs> <laughs> it's the old. Uh, uh, yeah, no, I, I agree with you. like glue. 
Yeah, right? Yeah, I think that's, that's got to be it. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you look at these things not yep. as people who are playing them. This is a game. This is not an investment Correct. strategy, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's in many ways sort of an outgrowth of social media and, and gaming. And, uh, you know, if you can make a, a, a quick buck or, you know, a lot of bucks in short time uh, playing uh, this uh, mob flash mob uh, phenomenon, then why not? Uh, and the focus to focus on a few stocks makes sense because you can really move them. If you start to diversify the portfolio of meme stocks, that might yeah. wear off. Lionel Richie is who I couldn't think of. Is that, yeah. <laughs> the brain is I think I had a different song in mind. Yeah. And I always look at it um, as well as a sort of emblematic of what's going on in markets. We know a year, a year and a half ago, two years ago, the meme stocks told you there was way too much liquidity in the system. What is it telling you now? May very well be saying the same thing all, all over again. The S&P 500 bottomed on June 16th. And I think the reason it bottomed is because investors started to conclude that uh, we, maybe we've seen peak inflation. Uh, bond yields started coming down. Commodity prices started coming down. So all that kind of uh, made sense. But that also uh, alerted uh, speculators that uh, maybe it's safe now to come back and, uh, and play the game and that there is enough liquidity uh, to do so. So we began uh, the hour by sort of posing the question, why, why are bond yields slumping while the Fed is signaling that it is going to continue raising rates? Yeah, well, you know, a long time ago, back in the early 80s, I started talking about the bond vigilantes. And uh, the bond vigilantes were very vigilant. At the beginning of the year, bond yields went up dramatically, mortgage rates went up dramatically. And that certainly has helped to slow the economy down and uh, uh, create a housing recession for all practical purposes. Uh, but now what? I mean, uh, now the bond yield has come down. They're not being very very vigilant. It's not as though we are, you know, slam dunk assured that inflation is coming down. And yet we've got this uh, drop in bond yields. The only thing I can really explain that with is uh, the, the bond market must be perceiving that things are going to get a lot weaker, which is certainly wasn't confirmed by Friday's em employment report. And I think foreign investors uh, are kind of viewing the United States as a safe haven. I kind of coined a, a new phrase here, TNEC, that uh, there is no alternative country. And when people look at all the geopolitical mess we're in now, they want to be in the U.S. and the dollar's been strong and they've been putting it in fixed income. Teaneck, right next door. Nice town. Ed Yardeni, thanks. Always a pleasure. Good. And if investing in meme stocks makes you a little nervous, our next guest favors some more traditional names he thinks will hold up well if there is a recession. Michael Aroni is chief investment strategist at State Street Global Advisors. It's good to see you, Michael. I mean, Ed was painting, I think, a little bit more optimistic uh, take of the macro backdrop. And um, I don't know, I don't know if you need to kind of weigh in on the recession question in order to pick stocks right now. I don't think you need to weigh in on it. I do think the interesting thing here is that we know that the economic data, the labor market data, and the earnings data are going to, to kind of bottom. And before that happens, markets will begin to price in a recovery. So in many ways, I think investors this cycle's been going at warp speed. And so I think in some ways, investors should be thinking about the recovery playbook, even though the economic labor and earnings data hasn't bottomed yet. Hmm. So what will do well in the early parts of a recovery? Wait a minute, wait a minute, this is interesting. Can what does well in the early parts of a recovery also be true if we have, for example, the postponement of a recession? In other words, what do you think the next six months are gonna bring? 
I do think that that's possible, and it is somewhat unclear in terms of this idea that if the Fed keeps raising rates aggressively, I do think a recession is inevitable, but it may not be imminent. And so as long as corporate profitability continues to be strong, which we have seen, labor market, certainly Friday's job report was outstanding, and they continue to spend in terms of capital expenditures, I think that some of these kind of cyclical stocks, particularly value-oriented ones, can hang in there and perform well. And you have several names here. One of them we just talked about, Honeywell, uh, because it could be a beneficiary from some of the Inflation Reduction Act stuff. Uh, 3M as well. Walk us through these. So we put a few stocks together today, one energy, two industrials, and a bank. So those are all, again, if investors begin to price in a recovery before the, the data bottoms, these, I think, will all be winners. So uh, Occidental Petroleum, for example, will continue to benefit from high revenues. They're reducing debt. They're buying back their shares. Uh, so that's still trades, despite its good performance, at a reasonable multiple. 3M. Kelly, 3M has increased its dividend for more than 20 consecutive years, and it's got a healthy 4% yield, never mind the fact that it just beat its earnings both top line and bottom line and is going to spin out its healthcare division. So this is another stock that should do well. And then finally, Honeywell, uh, you had just put it on the previous segment, should benefit from the Inflation Reduction Act. And again, another company that beat on both earnings and revenues and I think we'll benefit from an increase in spending in the aer aerospace and defense industry. Yeah. As you look at, let's flip over to the bond side, and as you look at where yields are and you look at the inversion uh, that is there between the 10 and the 2s and the 5s, uh, what does that tell you? I mean, you say uh, a recession is inevitable but not imminent. Does that confirm your view? It does. So what it tells me is that bond investors are pricing in a recession. And Ed Yardini just mentioned it as well, and I think many others. If we look at short-term yields, they're rising because the Fed is going to raise rates aggressively. Uh, the jobs report the other day, a lot of the inflation data continues to suggest that they have a lot of work to do. So short-term rates are rising still. Long-term rates are reflecting, they reflect three things, Tyler. They reflect growth expectations, inflation expectations, and term premium. Let's put that aside for a minute. Well, growth expectations are falling pretty quickly, and I do think that that's important. So we just did an inflation uh, impact survey of, in, of in, individual investors, and the majority of them expect a recession in the next 6 to 12 months. There you go. Michael Aroni, thank you very much. We appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thanks for being with us. All right, coming up, shares of Valley Bank up 12% over the past month, outperforming the big banks. The CEO will be with us to discuss lending the consumer the decline in rates, even as the Fed hikes. Plus, we are trading at Dick's Sporting Goods, Urban Outfitters, and Cracker Barrel, three stocks with a large short interest as a percentage of the total float. Find out which is a buy in today's three-stock lunch. And as we head to a break, a look at some of the stocks hitting new 52-week highs. Yes, that happens in today's session, including McKesson, Vertex, and Centene. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast. 
generating texts in seconds thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva! At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome back to Power Lunch. Shares of the mid-sized bank Valley National up uh, about 12% over the past month, outperforming lots of big names in the S&P financial sector by almost six percentage points. But it's been a tough environment for banks to navigate. Interest rates uh, continued to drop in many uh, parts of the market as uh, the Fed continues to hike. Uh, joining us with a look at the landscape and consumer and lending is Ira Robbins, Valley Bank CEO and Chairman. Ira, welcome back. Good to have you with us. You know, we talked a little bit a moment ago with um, uh, with Ed Yardeni, who said uh, that a recession, in his view, was was inevitable, if not necessarily uh, imminent. I wonder what you think, and I particularly wonder if you're beginning to see any in your portfolio uh, and business any of the telltales of of recession, namely. Uh, businesses cutting back on loan demand, not borrowing as much, uh, loans uh, either uh, delinquent or in default. What are you seeing there, if anything? I mean, if I was to listen to everyone on TV and read the newspapers, I would think a recession's imminent tomorrow. But when I look at the underlying performance of our organization, loan demand, which was up over 20% this last quarter, a commercial pipeline, which is up over $200 million from going into the third quarter versus what was going into the second quarter. I would say the numbers don't support internally here at Valley or what a lot of the rhetoric is on the street today. So who's borrowing? Who's increasing? Where's the loan demand coming from? I think for, for us, we're a commercial focused or, oriented bank. So the com commercial demand is still very strong. The consumer demand has definitely subsided a little bit today. And I think what we're seeing today, especially on the residential market, is probably where we were uh, two or three months ago. That said, that's a decline of about 40% from where we were January and about 60% year over year. So there's definitely been a decline in the consumer demand for uh, loans. But that said, it's begun to plateau. So tell me why mid-sized regional banks seem to be outperforming the big boys, the Chases, the uh, the Bank of Americas, and so forth. What's your hypothesis there? I, I think large, a lot of those large banks are really consumer-driven, where Valley is a relationship-focused commercial bank. And relationship-focused commercial banks seem to be doing very, very well today. The commercial customer still has a lot of liquidity, still has a lot of capital X demand that they're looking for. And demand is very strong within that specific segment today. So I think the regional bank space is going to continue to outperform the large money center banks as well as some of the small banks. You've had a, a recent merger or acquisition of Bank Leumi. Uh, why and why now? Why'd you do yeah. it? Yeah, I think as we think about the future, you know, funding is going to become a greater and greater issue for the banking landscape. Uh, Bank Layumi had a significant amount of tech business from a vertical perspective. And at Valley, we think it's very important that we continue to diversify the funding book across the entire organization. And I think the market has generally seen a lot of liquidity in the banking space. And as that begins to come out, go into treasuries, which is obviously impacting the overall yields on some of the treasuries, uh, demand is going to outpace the funding that sits in the banking space today. So for us to diversify funding sources becomes very critical. 
And Ira, just to circle back, you know, can you talk about those commercial customers and how solid their demand is, what that pipeline you think for loan growth looks like? Because the confusion people have about this recession, this economy, is the fact that the consumer has slowed, like you acknowledge. Uh, so tell us what's going on uh, elsewhere and whether you think it's sustainable. I mean, I really do. I think the the projects that I see them looking at when it be term financing for certain equipment seems to be very, very strong at, at our organization. So I think a lot of companies are looking at clean and environmentally friendly manufacturing. And there's significant demand for that type of product from a consumer perspective. As you see, Congress is beginning to think about subsidizing the demand for some of that as well. And our manufacturers are looking at producing some of those products. It's going to increase inflation without any question, uh, but there's strong demand for that. Let's put some numbers, if you, if you don't mind. Everybody talks about how in periods of rising rates for banks, uh, it can help net interest income and, and net interest margin. Tell us about what your experience has been in the most recent quarter on those two fronts. Yeah, I think banks in general did very well this last quarter. From an index perspective, banks outperformed estimates by about 4% this last quarter. Valley alone, we were up 14% on a lean quarter basis on our, our earnings per share. Loan growth was over 20% for us, and margin expanded well over 25 basis points as well. And typically, when interest rates begin to rise, banks begin to ignore some of the benefit from it right off the bat. That said, there's usually a lagging impact from a funding perspective, about two or three quarters later, where the cost of deposits tend to really increase. So right now really is a sweet spot from the bank perspective as to where credit hasn't necessarily turned yet if we are going to go into a recession. And margins are really strong. And profitability as a result has been fabulous for us. And I'm curious if you guys are experiencing what we're seeing on the macro level, Ira, with a lot of wage inflation. Um, you said you have good uh sort of profit margin growth right now, but what's that going to look like? And with productivity, I don't know if you saw the numbers this morning, it's just terrible. And I don't know if you have any hypothesis about that. I, I, would, I would argue a lot of that's uh, based on how people are working today, uh, maybe impact <laughs> on their productivity, but, but I don't want to go necessarily on record as saying that overall. <laughs> what's your uh, work from home policy there at Valley? Uh, not, not, look, we have to be flexible on, on understanding what the competition looks like today uh, as well. Um, you know, for us, like I said, demand has been super, super strong. We've had to really increase wages as a result of that. Uh, effective July 1st, we increased a 5% across the board wage for everyone making less than $75,000 within the organization. Last year alone, our average annual salary went up 11%. And we continue to have to make uh, off the uh, annual basis adjustments on a month by month basis. You know, all this is going to be inflationary as well. And, and there is still significant wage demand from my uh, from my perspective. Wow. Eleven percent. Wow. Uh, Very. That's, that's amazing. All right, Ira, thank you so much. Good to see you again. Great seeing you. Thank you so much for the time today. Ira Robbins with Valley National. Up next, the Modern Family Office. These firms are investing north of $100 billion in startups last year. They're taking on the likes of the VCers. We're going to get an inside look at how family offices are shaking things up in Silicon Valley. Plus, today's working lunch. We're getting up close and personal with San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly. Power Lunch is back in a moment. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big. Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click. Click, 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 click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. 
Welcome back to Power Lunch. Family offices recently passed hedge funds in terms of money managed. We're talking about more than $6 trillion. Fortunately, Robert Frank is here to take us inside this sometimes secretive and shadowy world of cozy called family offices, Robert. And now they're pushing to the VC world. Yeah, Kelly, these family offices have gotten so big, they are now taking on the venture capital industry. Their investments doubling last year to over $120 billion. As you can see, more than 2,300 deals. That's 10 times the level of 2014. Now, part of the reason is that family offices are exploding in size, but they're also shifting more of their fortunes into private companies. For the latest family office investor, we talked to Michael Hyatt. He is a serial tech entrepreneur and family office founder. Five years ago, he invested in a Canadian storage company that had only $5,000 a month in sales. Now it's called GoBolt and is valued at over $600 million. My principle is if you find an entrepreneur you really like, don't be afraid to give that entrepreneur the biggest break they'll ever have because the payoff can be enormous. And that's what I did. I find people I really like and I want to row in the boat with and I give them the biggest break and I bring money and capital and gravitas and then I help them build something great. And, it, and it's worked out for me three, four times. And direct deals like that now account for about 20% of family office portfolios. UBS says that's going to grow to over 30% in the next five to 10 years, surpassing equities. You can see our full interview with Michael Hyatt on CNBC Pro. Guys? So it's interesting to see them looking to put more money into startups. It's not like there wasn't already a ton of competition. You know, he made this great investment, but VCs have been trying to do this for literally decades now. Yeah, and entrepreneurs love family offices more than VCs because there's no real timeline. VCs typically have an 8 to 10 year exit. You know, family offices actually love timelines that are 20, 30, 50 years, so it's more patient and the decision-making process is much faster. Wow. So the entrepreneurs, you're right, they have choices, there is competition, but many of them are going to family offices also for the advice that entrepreneurs like Michael can give them. Fascinating. All right, Robert, thank you very much. Good to see you. Good to have you in house. Well, let's get to Kate Rooney now for a CNBC News update. Kate. Hi, Tyler. The Biden administration is preparing to move forward with a plan to stretch the limited supply of monkeypox vaccine doses. It would allow providers to use one-fifth as much per shot. This comes a week after the Biden administration declared monkeypox a public health emergency. Police in New Mexico are stepping up security at Albuquerque-area mosques and Muslim community schools as investigators hunt for the suspect who gunned down four Muslim men over the past nine months. The city will also be working with the police departments serving the University of New Mexico and the Albuquerque public school system, working to ensure students are safely returning to their respective campuses. And E.C. Miyake, who built one of Japan's biggest fashion brands and was known for his boldly sculpted signature pleated pieces, has died of liver cancer. Miyake was 84. Uh, Tyler and Kelly, back over to you. All right, thank you very much. Kate Rooney, ahead on Power Lunch with meme stocks going viral yet again and investors potentially looking for riskier bets are highly shorted stocks on the table as well. We'll discuss that in three stock lunch. Plus, slumping in the seat. Ticket prices higher than ever, but sellers like Vivid Seats lower for the year. Will the push for experiences over things get their stocks back on track? The CEO joins us next.
Welcome back, everybody. 90 minutes left in the trading day. We want to get you caught up across the markets on stocks, bonds, commodities, and a look at consumer spending with the CEO of Vivid Seats. But with the Dow pretty much at fresh session lows here, let's start with Bob Bassani at the New York Stock Exchange. Bob? Lows for the day, and uh, the S&P is uh, faring a lot worse uh, than the Dow today. And uh, essentially, um, we've been moving sideways for a number of days. I just want to show you the big uh, semiconductor names that are out there. Uh, Micron, remember, uh, has had a tough time this year. It's down about 35%, but uh, on the uh, comments they made uh, yesterday, down 4.7%. Today, NVIDIA's down another 4%. Uh, it could have been a lot worse. Just remember, a lot of people were saying much of the, the worst-case scenario is already behind us, but you see some of the semiconductor capital equipment names like Applied Materials, uh, ASL, ASML Holdings, uh, LAM. Uh, LRCH uh, at, uh, down even more than that uh, at this point. So keep an eye on that. Uh, airlines have been really strong recently, and they've had a great run. They're giving back a lot of the gains today. Uh, some of the other travel stocks are down. Norwegian Cruise Lines had some very disappointing commentary. That's down 10 or 11 percent. Uh, and that's uh, affecting Royal Caribbean uh, as well. One of the bright spots is energy. We've stabilized in oil in the last two or three days, right around $90 here. So you get a little push up once you get oil a little more stable for some of the energy names like Devon, Hess, Exxon, and APA, the old Apache. Uh, but by and large, we're about where we were oh, about six or seven trading sessions ago, Kelly, and a lot of difficulty pushing the market forward when we do have the good news or the good sense that we're going to see some kind of uh, modest recession or a very mild recession. And that's the story the bulls are pushing. At the same time, they can't answer the fundamental question of where inflation is going to be. So you're sort of at a stalemate at this point in the S&P. Kelly, back to yeah, you. Yeah, I'm watching the energy trade for that reason exactly. We'll talk to Pippa about that. But if we see pressure coming back on the consumer from gas prices. First, though, let's get to the bond market where Rick Santelli is watching yields ahead of that CPI report in the morning, Rick. Yes, that CPI report is going to be important. You know, this morning we saw some major improvement in non-farm productivity, but that still brought us to a minus 4.6 for the second quarter preliminary improvement but still really nasty productivity. We know that negative GDP back-to-back -back and rising job levels, solid job creation, could only mean one thing. Productivity is not good, and most likely I don't see any improvement on the horizon. But for tomorrow, it's going to be a big day for the July read for Consumer Price Index. And there's two areas that I think investors should pay close attention to. If you recall, last month the headline number was up 1.3. 1.3 was a 42-year high back to 1980. But tomorrow, expectations are for up two to three tenths. So it's doubtful we're going to challenge history. But where we could challenge history is the year-over-year -year headline. It was up 9.1 last time. That was the highest in 41 years back to 1981. Expected to be up 8.7. There could be surprises. And how did the markets react since then? Well, those data points for June were released on the 13th of July. Here's a two-year note yield since that time. You can see how it's turned back up to a higher yield, whereas the 10-year has gone on somewhat flat, and that really does encapsulate the flattening slash inversion going on because long rates are super glued, but yet short rates continue to move higher. Kelly, back to you. All right, Rick, thank you very much. And now let's turn to energy, which is kind of a linchpin between inflation and the markets, and we're seeing some stickiness around that $90 a barrel level. Pippa Stevens has the latest. Pippa? Hey, Kelly, yes, we are. Oil is moving between gains and losses today in choppy trade. 
Crude did bounce off the lows after Russia's state-owned pipeline operator said oil flows to Eastern Europe have been halted due to sanctions preventing the transit fee. But this was not enough to counteract demand, slow down fears, and oil is finishing modestly lower. WTI is at $90.36 for a last uh, loss of half of 1%, with Brent crude right around $96. Nat gas is making back some of yesterday's slide, with European gas also on the move. And that huge swing in prices amid Europe's energy crisis is hitting consumers. Energy firm Cornwall Insight released new figures today forecasting the price cap levels For the UK, come January, they see it surging above the 4,000-pound mark for the first time. That's more than 200% above what households paid this year. And this comes after the UK energy regulator said it would adjust the price cap every three months instead of twice a year, Kelly, due to volatile markets. Pippa, what is the point of a price cap if they just keep raising it? Do you say 2,000 pounds? Uh, 200% above what it is this year. That's come January. And they keep raising it because the prices keep going up. And so they're passing it along to consumers at a faster rate than they were previously. And that's leading to more and more calls about a a crisis for consumers, particularly around the poverty line who just cannot afford an energy bill that's more than 4,000 pounds. Wow. We see social media campaigns, Don't Pay UK, things like that as well that are just starting. Pippa, thank you. Our Pippa Stevens. Let's turn back here to new spending data from the U.S. showing a bit more resilience. We're not facing nearly the same energy crunch. Uh, New data from Bank of America show total payments were up 7% in July from a year ago and card spending per household up more than 5%. That's amid all the talk of recession and, of course, gas prices that are just in July starting to abate. Uh, Now from our next guest, a large part of that spending maybe going to concert tickets. Vivid Seats today reported a strong quarter, raised its outlook, and with us is Stan Chia. He is the CEO. Stan, welcome. Uh, People paying, I mean, how's inflation factoring into all of this? Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, look, I think when we look at consumer spending patterns, you know, I think we're very proud of the fact that we are the only live events marketplace that has a rewards program for every single fan. And we're continuing to see strength in the business as folks, I think, try to move towards experiential things over materialistic things. We just reported you know, in the second quarter the largest numbers of orders we've ever done in a quarter. And I think that speaks to the strength of the business and also consumers' desire to go to live events. So why is it that Norwegian is out there saying they're not going to go back to pre-pandemic levels for another year? Stock's getting hit today, and it's a different story for you guys. What's the difference between showing up to a, a concert and booking a cruise? Yeah, look, I, I, I would tell you when we look at our business, you know, the underlying strengths of, you know, artists wanting to get back out there and tour, uh, the teams wanting to get fans in the stands, and then just the fans' desire to be at live events where, you know, it might be a once-in-a-lifetime chance to see Elton John on his farewell tour. Um, maybe this is the last time you'll catch Adele performing at Caesars. You know, any of these events, which I think have a more impactful um, experience with consumers, I think that continues to lead us to believe that users and, and, and consumers are willing to spend on live events, perhaps more so than other discretionary categories. Adele, didn't, didn't Adele sort of not show up for one of her things? I can't Vegas, remember, but yeah. yeah, in Vegas. Yeah, there was one number that, that uh, keeps getting cited in the reports, and that is Marketplace GOV, $815 million. That was a big number, a big increase uh, over the past. What does that number represent? Is that the total value of the tickets sold? In other words, if I, 
if I see on your site that uh, a ticket for Sebastian Maniscalco is uh, is seventeen hundred dollars, and and so that's is that the marketplace GOV? Yeah. Hey, Tyler. And yes, uh, Sebastian, that's going to be a great show. You should you should definitely go I, check I did. that out. I went out. and saw it. I, 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 <laughs> and I bought them through you guys. So I was a happy awesome. customer. I love it. Um, but well, yes, the Prudential Center didn't at, know how to handle the crowd, but it was all right. It's not your <laughs> fault. That's their fault. <laughs> yeah. When we look at Marketplace GOV, you know, we had a great quarter, almost up 20 percent year over year. And Marketplace GOV for us is everything um, that you see there on, you know, what consumers pay in aggregate that we've sold for the quarter. And so what's your what is your take out of that? What is your revenue out of that total revenue? Your total revenue was, I forget, 125 million, something like that. I can't remember for the half. Yeah, we did just under 148 million in revenue this quarter um, on that 800 um, over 800 million in GOV. What is um, what is the strongest part of the business? Is it live sporting events uh, or, or is it the return to concerts, comedy? What's what has surprised you there or is one stronger than the other or is it is it everybody just wants to get out and go? Yeah, I think we've seen a, a pretty concerted uniform effort from consumers to get back to events across all the categories. For us, we are certainly seeing strength across um, live events and concerts. We're seeing them in sports. We're seeing the return of, I'd say, the performing arts as well. And sometimes it's, you know, really great news like you know, Soto going to the Padres, driving a spike in demand there. So I think we've right. seen across our platform, again, just great strength across the categories. And we attribute a lot of that with us to the fact that, you know, we've got a great rewards program out there to continue rewarding users to come back to our platform for future events. There's nothing like a live event. And, and I have to say nothing like a live event at Jones Beach. That amphitheater there is one of the great <laughs> viewing places ever. Stan Chia. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, see you soon. All right, coming up, uh, John Ford. John Ford uh, is going to bring us his interview with San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly, hitting everything from the economy to equity and inclusion. Working lunch is next. We will be right back. All right, Friday's strong jobs number uh, renewed concerns about how the high demand for labor is adding to pressing up on inflation. This week, John Ford brings us up close with a Federal Reserve official whose relationship with work started very early. John. Yeah, Tyler, Mary Daly is president and CEO of the San Francisco Fed. She also dropped out of high school to work at age 15 after her parents got sick. Daly went on to earn her GED, bachelor's, master's, and doctorate in economics. She learned to thrive despite the odds until one day, early in her time as an economist at the Fed, one of her superiors put up a barrier that stunned her. And then someone told me that I wasn't going to be able to go in front of a specific group because I was gay. And it might be an embarrassment or it might not sit well because maybe the people we were going to speak to didn't really love gay people. And it was the first time in my life where, I mean, I've been odd for a long time, right? I'm low income, lower income, I'm from the wrong side of the tracks. I'm gay, I dropped out of high school. I mean, I got a lot of weird, I'm short. You know, I got a lot of things that don't make me fit. But that was the first time that someone had directly told me that because of something I was, I was going to be constrained. And it stopped me in my tracks. I, I, real, I called a friend of mine um, and I said, I don't know what's happening to me. 
And she happens to be a, a black woman. And she said, oh, the first time someone stopped me and told me I wasn't going to be able to do something because I was black or I might not fit in because I was black. And they said it out loud to me. It's like you've been hit by a car. You know, you're stunned. And for me, that was the hardest moment in my career. A couple of allies at work came to her defense. She did speak to the group and it went well. Today's challenge for Daly is different as she and other Fed officials study how to bring down inflation without sparking a recession. One puzzle, is it possible for Fed policy to reduce the number of job openings, a precursor to spiking wages, without also causing unemployment to rise? It's never been done before, but Daly said this time might be different. Now, low-wage workers are the ones really seeing rapid wage growth, and that's because Restaurants are competing with hotels all in this reopening phase. If you've been to an airport, it's hard to to get in line for something because the the food counters are understaffed. TSA is even understaffed. A lot of lower wage workers are have other opportunities now. And one of the main ones is in warehousing and distribution, right? So that's been a booming sector and it's just increased the job opportunities for lower wage workers. The, the thing that makes the matching efficiency not as challenging this time around though, is if you can work at a restaurant, you're pretty diversified. You can go and work at a warehouse or distribution job without a lot of extra training outside of the on-the-job training that they provide. So workers are pretty mobile across these lower-wage sectors, and that means that they can get these jobs pretty readily, which would be good news for matching efficiency. Well, unlike a lot of economists, Daly has personal experience as a lower-wage worker and being part of a marginalized group. We'll see if the Fed policy she's advocating can cool the economy without severely hurting the most vulnerable guys. It's an inspiring story, and I guess it, 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 it tells me once again, uh, don't tell me I can't, let me show you what I can do. I mean, that, and, and it's often uh, that kind of uh, jolt uh, that is the most inspiring thing you see in business. Indeed, and one of the things most resonant with her is the people who helped her at various stages in her journey. Uh, one was a teacher, when she was in high school, who had a friend who sort of encouraged her back into the edu educational process, which she views as so important for helping people to, to thrive in this next stage of the economy. I mean, the fact that she not only got her GED, but do you know how she became an economist, John? Did she talk about, what, did she have a particular interest in that? Or I, it's not, it's just such a, a, look at her at the top of the field now, right? As one of the Fed officials that we talk about, who's moving all of these, as everyone's watching the yield curves invert and what, she's one of the people we're talking about. Well, her, her initial degrees were in uh, economics and public policy. So uh, her concern for people living uh, in all kinds of circumstances, all, all, you know, both sides of the tracks was a part of that. She's also doing a podcast called uh, Zip Code communities where she actually goes in and talks to people who are working in a community in one of the nine states that the San Francisco Fed covers. So continuing to look into the real impacts on the ground of what the economy is doing. Yeah, she probably represents more of the country than anyone but the president, pretty much. It's a big, big portion. John, thank you very much for bringing that to us, our John Ford today. Still to come, trading on the short run. We'll highlight stocks with huge bets against them, and our trader will tell you whether or not to buy now. 
Welcome back. Time for today's three-stock lunch. Lunch and on our menu today are three stocks with high short interest as a percentage of their float. That's Dick Sporting Goods at 27%, Urban Outfitters 25%, and Cracker Barrel at 16%. Each of these are also more than 30% off their highs. Let's trade them with Victoria Green. She's Chief Investment Officer at G Squared Private Wealth. Victoria, it's great to have you on board. What do you do with Dick Sporting Goods? Uh, we're a buyer of this rally of Dix. We actually think the company's in a really good position. They've been modernizing the last five years. They're very tech forward. They have its omnibus channel. So you want to pick it up curbside, one hour ordering, and they hit a great market. Uh, they have a lot of uh, high end products like uh, the golf simulators, the baseball simulators. They have trained staff to help you pick something out. So we've seen that high end part of this market be more resilient. Uh, so we think their revenues are actually a lot better. Plus, they ripped the Band-Aid off first quarter. So kind of got all the bad news out there. Let everybody know, yes, things are more expensive. Yes, wages and labor cost a little bit more. So I am, I'm still a buyer of dicks even after this bounce. Yeah, and they're really, uh, it, it, once uh, Sports Authority went away, they have that sort of sports superstore, at least in the East, uh, largely to themselves. Let's go to yeah, Ur- they've Urban. They've got 8% o- of the market. Yeah, let's go Sorry, to Urban Outfitters. But- <laughs> Let us know what you think there. Um, apparel has been a tough place to be. It has, it has, and we are still a seller of Urban Outfitters. I think this downtrend is intact, and I don't think they're going to be able to break out of it. It's all about the inventory game right now, and they're going to have struggle to get inventory off the books. Barclays uh, estimates for the last three quarters, their sales to inventory has been negative growth. So that means the inventory continues to build, and as we know with fashion, it changes. It changes seasonally. It changes over time, so they've got to use promos and increase marketing expense to get this inventory off their books, and it's going to be a struggle and a drag on margin. So I know it's a highly shorted stock right now. I know it's in this downtrend, struggling to break out, bouncing around 20 to 18, and I'm just not a buyer. I'm still a seller. Yeah, tell us how you really feel. <laughs> oh, well, all right. I love it. <laughs> what about Cracker Barrel, Victoria? Oh, Cracker Barrel is going through an identity crisis. <laughs> and so I'm a seller of Cracker Barrel right now. They want to be this home country value store, but now they're adding pricier options to their market. They are well endowed. Uh, they've got a lot of 65-year-old, well, sorry, the senior part of their market is very strong versus other competitors. So they face uh, pressures from potentially people on fixed income, as well as they really can't figure out their customer base. They want to grow. They want to appeal to millennials, but they're not tech forward. Uh, they're not very to-go friendly. And, and even they tried to add plant-based and it caused an uproar with their current client base. So <laughs> they, they can't add new, new uh, consumers and millennials and appeal to the vegetarians because that's alienating their base of seniors. So they're very dependent on the driving season. They've got a lot of stores across the interstate. So right now, I just think their model is struggling. Uh, They've got high commodity costs, 16 to 18 percent. Commodity inflation is expected, 8 to 10 percent wage growth expected. And I don't think they're going to see the sales growth. So I think this company needs to figure out who they are, how they're going to grow profits, and how they peel across a mass margin. And I will say this as well. They're a value that's how they market themselves as a value diner. But there's always a little bit cheaper options in the fast food. So they're sure. not quite value enough to be value. But they're also not a trendy enough or, or high end enough that you're going to go out for a treat necessarily at the Cracker Barrel. You're going to go to Texas Roadhouse or Outback. So they're kind of in this weird middle ground that I also think is going to come under pressure with inflation. Yeah. Did, did I hear you say Cracker Barrel and vegetarian in the same sentence? <laughs> <laughs> they did, and it, you should see it. It caused this Twitter and Facebook uproar because they added a Impossible Meat patty, and they yeah. thought they were being innovative, and it caused the you know an internet. They went viral for all the wrong reasons. Yeah. But yes, there was a vegetarian. I like Cracker Barrel. Uh, I, I think it was still. It's not 
fried, but it was close to fried since it's a fake yeah. sausage patty. Yeah. I kind of like cracker. I'm bro. craving some right now. <laughs> Joe, my wife, loves it. It's one of her favorite places. <laughs> Thank you, Victoria. Victoria Green. For more high short interest stocks that could present opportunity, head over to CNBC.com slash pro or Cracker Barrel. All right. Up next, we'll put, uh, put uh, some interesting stories under the microscope for you. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back to Power Lunch, everybody. Here are a couple of stories that caught our attention today. Ford hiking the price of its F-150 Lightning pickup. The automaker citing significant material cost increases. The uh, starting prices for the 2023 model uh, will range from 47000 to 97000 Wow. That's up from 40000 to 92000 for the 2022 model year. Price hikes come ahead of the reopening of orders on Thursday. Uh, the company closed orders for the vehicle late last year. They can't keep up with demand. Uh, this is what we were talking about, I believe, yesterday with one of our guests about price hikes, Tesla doing the same thing. Absolutely. The Model Y, which used to be at the at the high 50s, low, now it's closer to 70,000. Uh, so a lot of these electric vehicles are, are under and pressure. Cynically, I couldn't help but wonder if this would be the, about the amount of the subsidy they could be getting with the $7,500 ah, tax yeah. credit, but I'm, I'm not even sure they would qualify. The sourcing requirements are so high. Yeah, it's, uh, it's obviously de it's demand and yes. it is lack of supply and you have to wait a long time. Yes, and finally, people are taking more vacation these days, but we're also spending more time on vacation, checking into work. Why? I mean, that's just what we do. We have these things everywhere. It's they a chase you. They do. So you're working from home, but a recent survey from Corn Ferry found that 60% are still in touch with work during their vacations. And I saw Dan Primack doing just this on Twitter yesterday. He now said, I'm you were on off vacation. last week. What did you do? Did you check in? Okay, well, I was with the kids. So to cover for the babysitter. If so you I come here to recover. I come here to recover. If I touch this device while they're around, it's it's over. It's so I was over. forced to take a true forced break. sabbatical. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty. Uh, what is that? <laughs> oh, she's talking to our producers, telling us she was checking the th the two ten spread. All right, <laughs> The threes tens is about to invert. take us out of here. <laughs> Thanks for watching, Fire Lunch, everybody. Closing bell right now. At Capella University. You'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.